OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Well, welcome. It's uh, very exciting to have you here today, Vic. Uh, you've got an impeccable background. So I'm excited to dive in and learn a lot more about yourself and share that with our community. But uh, to kind of start it off, the best way would be to share a little bit about your background, kind of where you've come from, where you're going, where you've landed, and then we'll dive right into it from there. Yeah, right on. Um, so yeah, so first off, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it's an honor to be here. And uh, I know we met sharing that panel way back when during the, the height of the pandemic. Um, so it's good to reconnect. But um, yeah, so uh, Vic Sassi, um, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is now I think currently under like two meters of snow. Um, and uh, I certainly can't, uh, yeah, I'm very grateful for that, but glad to be in sunny California. But but I grew up, um, you know, the first generation immigrant family um, of my heritage is Indian. Um, so my mom, dad, brother, and sister were all MDs, uh, medical doctors. And so luckily I had um, black sheep. Uh, I was known as a black sheep from a very young age. And I knew I was, you know, going to be a little more of a, take more of a wayward journey, maybe more of a wayward person. Um, so I did my undergrad down in biology. And, you know, soon after I graduated from college, um, I just, I really wanted to have impact in my career. I wanted to be out of my comfort zone. I didn't want to be a doctor, much to my parents' dismay. And so that basically set me on a path um, working abroad. So I spent about a year and a half in East and Central Africa um, doing work, working for nonprofits and NGOs. And then I spent three and a half years in Haiti um, working as an analyst for President Clinton's foundation and then later actually being poached by the government of Haiti to um, finish our project, which was working on the National HIV program after the earthquake. So um, it was, you know, radically different than, than what most, uh, VCs, you know, sort of come into after like a two-year consulting or banking program or something like that. Um, non-traditional is basically my middle name. And, uh, and after I finished in Haiti, I, I knew grad school was the next logical step in my career and business school enables you to totally reinvent yourself and was fortunate to go to university of Chicago and their full-time program, um, was exposed to a number of different sort of hard finance internships and experiences and ultimately joined a fintech and insurtech corporate venture fund straight out of school that did, it was backed by a Fortune 300 legacy insurance carrier. Um, so I did a lot of, I, you know, I became a licensed insurance agent just to sort of speak the language, um, which was, it's a, an, an interesting endeavor just by itself, um, but specialized in, in blockchain, crypto, ag tech, and then some of the core fintech and insurtech parts. Um, and then more recently, um, I spent about two years um, at that fund, and then I'm now coming up on two and a half years at Dreamers, which is an early stage generalist fund based here in LA. Most notable aspects that were co-founded by Will Smith and Keisuke Honda, a major Japanese soccer player. Um, what's interesting is that we're not a traditional celebrity fund or an offshoot of the family office. We're structured like a two and 20 venture fund and capitalized with all Japanese limited partners. So. Nomura, the big investment bank, is our anchor. And then uh, we have a pretty diverse composition of the rest of our capital base. Shiseido, Mitsubishi, Asics, Dentsu, um, all make up our, our LP base. So um, yeah, that's where I am today um, and how I got here and happy to delve into you know more about our fund or um, whatever else I can answer for you, for you or your listeners. For sure. Well, all very exciting. Uh, I love the fact that you decided to diversify from the family background. I'm sure everybody's pretty happy with uh, with the move. Uh, you can always go back and be a doctor at 50 or something. So there's still room. <laughs> so in the in this process, I think what I what I what I hear and what I love about your background is that you're you're very diverse and that you got to work in these other countries. So maybe talk a little bit about that experience and how that's actually folded into what you're doing in this diversity fund, because I think that really probably speaks well to why, and we can dive in a bit in a bit as well to why Will Smith and family kind of partnered and jumped in with you. Yeah. So, you know, I would say, you know, one of the biggest things I learned from my experience um, experiences really abroad is you were so much closer to the end user. Um, and whether that means like literally the d detritus that comes from Western developed countries and like these like old t-shirts, you know, Super Bowl champions that never were and things like that. But also just in terms of like, you know, all the hand-me-down, like those Nokia phones that we, you know, were our first phones are now making their way, you know, around and, 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 and sort of just being really, you know, experiencing going through life and serving that end user 
actually helped me sort of pitch and is like, look, like I can actually empathize a lot more with, you know, future consumers, especially ones in, you know, whether it's emerging markets, frontier markets, to even just being, you know, from Wisconsin and working at a fund that had Midwestern roots, you know, we certainly did a lot of investing on both coasts and clearly the Valley in New York and Boston or power centers um, for venture. But at the end of the day, you know, what I, what I tend to found or what I, what I really like to select for with startups was, you know, which ones can actually cater to that middle market to sort you know, to fly over country to the 80% of Americans that live that whose, you know, incomes in aggregate are far greater than, you know, what then like that, those small pockets on the coast where the disposable incomes are higher and they have a lot more spend. And so um, that's always been something that's, that's driven me, whether to, you know, starting my first job in the Democratic Republic of Congo to even now looking for things that, you know, everyday consumers can actually enjoy. And, and really it's about, you know, one thing that, I think Uber really demonstrated was this idea of consumer surplus where the consumer is deriving or getting so much more value than so much more than what they're willing to pay, which I think, you know, we all find as much as we, you know, may complain about surge pricing and all these things, like it's still far better than waiting in a street looking for a cab or, you know, trying to hail one down or something. So um, consumer surplus matters a ton to me. I've seen it in developing countries. Um, and I basically apply that same sort of, you know, framework as to how would this impact the, you know, the, the end user um, even in my day-to-day investing right now. So did when you're working there and you're working in the Congo or working for in, in Haiti, did a lot of that, did you get into the ground side of things where you're really focused on that end consumer or did you get to see a lot of it just because there's containers coming in every day trying to help uh, a community build and rebuild and you start looking at this and say, you know what, there's got to be other solutions here. There's got to be startups that can jump in and fill the voids here and fix this. And how can we get the startups starting in this country? And then, hey, wait, maybe we can invest from our country into these areas. And maybe that's a better way of helping them grow. Right. Yeah. So, you know, when, when I was abroad, I, sh- I should note that this was very much pre sort of like my career now in tech. Um, so everything we were doing and especially, honestly, the poorer the country, the more low tech um, your idea or the project or anything likely should be given that they have rolling blackouts, you know, power is, you know, can't be taken for granted. Um, I worked for the ministry of health. And so, you know, one thing that like I can um, remember so fondly is how the, the world is dealing with this vaccine rollout, because I remember having to maintain a cold chain, nothing to the extent of, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not even putting myself near the shoes of the frontline workers and all, all the others that are, that are getting this out. But I just remember it's like, okay, like we got to have like specific igloo coolers. We can't have, and then, oh, you know, when we go to a site, it's like, of course they, they have no power and their generator is broken and there's a fight over who should pay for the gas, which means the fridges can't hold anything. And so, you know, a lot of time, and so at the time, you know, we'd see a lot of sort of like tourists come looking for tech solutions. Like how can we bring like a CRM so that you can track all these things? And it was like, look, we're using computers, you know, that still run on DOS. Like, we, we can't instant, you know, we don't have reliable internet. So it doesn't even matter if the CRM is, you know, God's gift to tracking yeah. patients, you know, we, we don't have connectivity. Um, so at the time I was actually not, not bearish, but I just wasn't as um, excited about introducing a lot of sort of like no, things we take for granted in the everyday world today. Um, and now having been in venture, there's nothing I would love more than to sort of marry the two. Um, but it's, it's really hard. And I talked to a lot of my friends that are still working in development and, you know, it's um, it's slower than I think we all would like, um, but it's like that for a reason because so many, so much more dollars have been wasted and burned trying to bring some of the more high tech solutions to some of these emerging countries. And everyone looks at the mobile phone as how Africa leapfrogged the landline and went straight to mobile. And it was like, yes, that's true, and we'd love to see that in a number of other things. Unfortunately, I'm not sure anything's come that close. Though, um, who knows where we'll be with. Granted, I guess um, you know the Loon project is, isn't it doesn't exist, but um, if Starlink or something comes to fruition, really you know empowering connectivity all over, I think that can really be a leapfrog. Um, there's also some really interesting crypto technologies, but um, anyway, I'll, I'll stop rambling. But um, I, I still remain as hopeful as ever, um, just a little more clear-eyed and, and less jaded. Well, I think what you're you're putting this into context is that. A lot of these startups that are branching in North America and they're going into these third world countries that uh, really need the tech, but there's a lot of misunderstanding or misinterpretation of how the society's operating and functioning. So they're going right. in there with this fintech payment that's going to run this way. And then when they get there, they realize, man, they can't even support this. They, I can only do text or running off DOS. 
And I think there is a lot of um, lost dollars and lost mindset to the fact that it, what being on the ground really makes a big difference in your startup and how it can actually start to get into these rural regions or areas that can't support things. Uh, like even you mentioned from uh, with the COVID piece, uh, one of the 30 um, lowest GDP uh, countries in the world haven't even got plans yet. 29 of them don't even have COVID rollout plans because they can't, one, afford it, two, they don't know what the direction is, or three, how to do it. So imagine going in there with all this tech and saying, hey, we're going to run blockchain off your back end of this and this, and everybody's going to be like, what? Well, we're just trying to get our phones to work. Like, we got right. blackouts. And, you know, that's what we went through 20, 30 years ago. They're going through in way higher impact today, and it changes the landscape. And uh, as a global investment firm, and we're trying to look at these globalized initiatives, you really do need people that are on the ground there that are working within those communities to better understand what the tech is that's there and how it can be enhanced and how it can be supported, because it's going to be a costly endeavor regardless. So I think that's some great insight on how you saw it and how much it hasn't really shifted or changed a lot in that time either. Right. And, you know, one thing that's interesting, just as a minor side, is so much of diplomacy and foreign aid is tied to politics. And so in the same way how, you know, a startup can have a great uh, contract going with a big enterprise and there's a new CEO or a new business unit leader and they're like, whoa, we're going to do, you know, zero cost budget, zero day budgeting. Um, and then it's like, we got to start from new. And it's like, oh, geez, like that can happen with new administrations, with new ambassadors, with new heads of, you know, uh, agencies for international development. And so, you know, in all because of some, you know, someone high up changing, they're like, you know what, we want to cancel all these projects. And so, yeah, it, it's a shame that sometimes like the direct beneficiaries are at the behest of politics, even though it's thousands of miles away. But, um, you know, it's all uh, it's part of the game that they unfortunately have no idea that they're a part of. Um, so say and, and it makes sense. And, and again, money talks and drives everything, unfortunately. So there's not much you can do about that. Right. How much of how much of this um, experience that, that you've had now shifts into with the big tech, like the blockchains of the world and things like that that are going on? Does that create more opportunity or are you finding it that it's just muddying the waters because the tech is so damn advanced um, that even North Americans haven't figured out how to use it? But people are talking about trying to implement it around the world. So has it kind of changed that whole dynamic? You're the first person I've got to interview that has a ton of stuff on blockchain. I love it. <laughs> but I've struggled with how anybody's even using any of this because it's so advanced and people just can't figure out how to tie the two together. So I'm curious. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's funny because crypto, I mean, look, obviously there like lots of people at startups. It, it's like a meme now to say that you're changing the world with your like, Wi-Fi connected juice machine, um, you know, bring like democratizing access to nutrients and supplements or something. I mean, you'll you'll find these crazy sort of sublines, but but I mean, nothing more so than blockchain crypto for good. And you know, I, I look, I, I think everyone was for the most part fairly well intentioned, um, and then I think they were also trying to sort of. I think, I mean, at least, you know, I've been in this space for now a couple of years. I'm not one of these OG Bitcoin millionaires or maybe now billionaires by now. Um, but to me, it was like, to, you know, to, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. To them, it was like blockchain or crypto can solve everything. And it was like, you know, M-Pesa has, you know, was obviously one of the most groundbreaking and really almost pioneered, especially compared to the West of, you know, sort of this mobile money or digital wallets. Um, but it took a great amount of sort of like behavioral change behind the scenes. And that had to happen. Um, that, that doesn't work through Google and Facebook ads. Like most people think like the cost of acquiring a customer is very different. And I'm by no means an expert, um, on this, as opposed to, you know, just like ramping up your Facebook ad spend using some certain keywords, then assuming you're going to drive, you know, growth that way, it's as inorganic as it comes. So, um, but, but to go back to what you were saying in terms of like blockchain crypto, yeah, I, I mean, it, it certainly leads back to the folks like, you know, people are basically plugging their phones in wherever they can get juice. And so to be like, hey, and, you know, they have a lot of distrust in the system. Lots of folks, you know, don't vote as much because yeah, there's distrust in institutions and all these other sort of like external factors. And then to sort of come in and like parachute in and say like, hey, like, you know, this like macroeconomic problem that you're, you may not even be aware of, like, guess what? Like, like they don't, I, I, and I'm not trying to generalize, but I, I just don't think like hyperinflationary, like the facts, the fact that Bitcoin has a fixed money supply 
like really plays into the day to day decisions of a lot of folks um, in some of these target countries. And, and I think it's just they they missed the forest for the trees, I think, you know, as they were trying to build these. And so and the other thing that, that I'll also say, and this is a little more controversial, is, you know, when I generally see um, startups, for profit startups that are, um, you know, that, that are kind of like bringing the violins out and, and all this stuff, I'm like, why aren't you a nonprofit? And look, I completely understand. And I very much, you know, I find Peter Thiel's politics far more different. I mean, they're certainly not my cup of tea, but he has this theory that like, you really want to change the world, you start a company and a, and a for-profit company. And I think there, there are a lot of elements of truth in that. Um, and, but at the end of the day, it's like, if you're a for-profit company, like you respond to your shareholders, like your customers are your customers, but don't try and like, you know, sort of like muddle the two. And I think, a lot of times I get personally annoyed because I'm like, well, I mean, be a nonprofit then. Like it's, I mean, you really want to change the world. You really want to like, like don't, you know, that's it. You want to change the world or you don't want to change the world, figure out which one you're on, which side of the track and run it. Right. Yeah. Or just be honest that like you want to enrich, you know, yourself, your employees and all these things for, for good reasons. uh, In addition to doing this, but don't, you know, say that this is like the sole reason for this company's, you know, being Um, that, that kind of drives me a little, a little bonkers. No, I can imagine. So on the, the blockchain front and crypto, obviously it's all taken off. It's it's uh, moving. Well, I would say the crypto side's kind of going into a bubble at the moment, but is there, do you see the value in what it's bringing to the world? And is it is it really uh, an investable area anymore? Uh, I know four or five years ago, it was the hottest thing to invest in, which was anything blockchain. I haven't really seen any like real takeoff blockchain companies. Okay, there's a couple. Uh, like there's a couple of everything, but is there? Is it still uh, an area that you focus on? Is it an area that startups should really dive into, or is it kind of a do it on the side while you're building your company? Yeah, um, I still remain fairly bullish. Um, and look, I think you, you know, just you said we're, we're likely in a bubble. I mean, we have unbelievable appreciation though then again given the bizarro world of public markets too it's like nothing is nothing's everything's fair game at this point i mean i I wouldn't be surprised by anything um but yeah i mean i I think it's actually been a slow crawl and so you know during the roller coaster of the icos in 2017 to the all-time low or not all-time lows i should say but you know the lows of december of 18 and, and all these things um uh I, um, I, the most impressive founders, the ones that have been committed to crypto for forever have always been heads down throughout. Like they don't check the price. They're not day traders. They are long-term, you know, hodlers and they just fundamentally believe in the technology and they're like, this is going to do it. And those companies I think have thrived. And those are the ones of the most recent assets that have probably been added to Coinbase's platform. They've seen unbelievable appreciation to their earlier investors. Um, and it's been a slow, you know, sort of rise in terms of like the amount of value or sorry, the amount of, um, I guess, wealth that, and not wealth, I guess, is purely dollars, I guess, that, that have gone to DeFi or decentralized finance. Um, I think in terms of like cross-border finance and just given the various sort of like rules and regulations on a country by country basis, and given we're in this increasingly globalized world, despite the, you know, what politics may be telling us. Um, I think there's a ton of really interesting innovation that's about that's about to come out. That's about to actually ship product. Um, that's going to be really exciting. And then you have you know that juxtaposed with the fact that India is trying to ban cryptocurrency, and it's just uh, you know China is about to roll out its digital yuan. They're already doing these pilots. I mean, it's really it's almost. I think it's it's almost going to be like an arms race, um, not too far in the future. Uh, so. I still remain, you know, very bullish. I would, I would never discourage an entrepreneur from, you know, trying to build something um, in the space. Um, but also, you have to remember that you're also competing for airplay or airtime, rather, with, um, you know, just like, <laughs> like there are certainly some strange, like, eccentric folks in Bitcoin and crypto, and so they're they're going to dominate the oxygen for a little bit because simply because of Bitcoin reaches, you know, across 50K today or something. So um, just tread lightly. But, you know, if you really do believe that, like a lot of us, that we're basically creating a new sort of foundation, foundational layer of the internet, then, I mean, dive head first. So do you think with this new layer of the internet that's coming out with this, do you think it's kind of, um, you called it like the in our, a new arms race, but do you think it's because people want to innovate faster than anybody in ever, any other time in the history of the world, that the rush is to innovate so fast 
that we're not looking at any sort of implications that are going on with the rest of the communities and the rest of the world. It's we need crypto and it's now. So everybody's just running and gunning as fast as they can. Cryptos are going through the roof on the cost side and on build side and everything else. But it's just almost like we haven't figured out a way to really use it yet, but let's just get this stuff out there and make sure everybody has it and we'll figure it out after. It kind of feels like it's so rushed because if I don't get there faster then the internet 3.0 is going to beat me to it. So like, what do I do? And is that kind of the, the role that's going on right now? Yeah. I, and, and I guess I should probably clarify, like with arms race, I guess I sort of meant, um, I think, you know, China having already gone through this central bank digital currency exercise and rolling out digital yuan, I think that, and in what I read is likely their quest to um, move the world off of the dollar as the global reserve and, you know, make the yuan. So I think all of these countries, you know, one, there's this, there's always going to be internal competition from country to country. And then there's also within the country, it's like, how important of a role do we want our central bank to have? And if we wanted to have an important role, we've got to get a digital dollar. We have to have a digital euro and all these things um, versus letting, you know, people use cryptocurrencies and doing that stuff. Like, obviously we still need to have some element of big brother in terms of an actual arms race. I mean, I think there's a lot more pain that can be inflicted with something like AI. And I mean, you know, if you read about what Eric Schmidt has been doing, you know, serving on the defense innovation advisory boards and all these things. And he is like, look, like there are going to be two internets. There's going to be the Chinese internet and, and maybe another, you know, and a global one, um, assuming we don't, you know, assuming like, like not, there's no more further splintering. Um, and then you talk about AI coming in with like, you know, on the battlefield and stuff. And so I, you know, as he, I'm a little more scared of, of that world um, of like answering those really important questions. And then there's also stuff that's like, you know, I worked in insurance at an insure tech fund and, you know, th- like the late, the biggest innovation to come into scoring someone's auto insurance um, other than telematics, which actually tracks your driving is simply like your credit score. And that was like in the, in the nineties that they started taking that into account. And so, you know, right now there's all sorts of really I'm sure underlying bias that's taking place that we're not realizing because a lot of the stuff is, you know, caught within a black box. So I'm a lot more worried about like fundamental algorithms that are now being introduced and iterated upon that may have underlying biases that are affecting us in ways that we won't realize until, you know, it's like years too late. And, um, and then we have to sort of go and like start building these things foundationally again. Um, so that's more of a personal, like, um, given the amount of, you know, as we've seen sort of like entrenched, you know, there's social justice issues, et cetera. And so like, even though we know where we're, you know, like, I just hope we're not making the same mistakes as we uh, of the past. So does this create kind of uh, an infringement on personal information data that's being collected, but on the same, same instance that if you take out big brother and you add in this layer of, um, decentralized markets and having everybody get a new, just now you've got big time investors diving into this saying, Hey, I got to be here. Elon Musk comes out and says that they put in a billion dollars, which again, I don't know how they get away with telling everybody all this stuff that they're doing, which just drives everything back up in price. (laughs) So does it, does it kind of influence and change the way people are looking at things or does it kind of stay like this for the next three to four to five years? And no one's really too worried about their privacy issues and decentralizing will uh, again, branch across the next two Chinese um, internet and the world internet that they're all going to just keep floating up higher until something bigger has to give. Um, what's your thoughts around that? Yeah. Now, I mean, this is stuff that I, it, it's, I, I mean, I hate the use of the term above my pay grade, but no, I, I mean, as to where I think this is all heading, I, I mean, you're right. It's like Tesla, you know, he announces they put a, you know, one and a half billion into Bitcoin and then boom, like they both pump the next day. And I mean, this, the whole Dogecoin thing, while in, I mean, how, I mean, it's so, uh, it's so outrageous. It's hilarious that, you know, he and, you know, a few others can, can post about it and then boom, it's like, this thing is like, you know, 40%, five, 50%. Um, there is some market manipulation and I understand the SEC because they're like, look, we're just here to protect the consumer. And it, it's just a bunch of competing priorities. It's like, well, if you're going to protect the consumer, then maybe you could also like democratize access to private securities by easing the threshold of the accredited investor, which, which they have done to some extent with, with this new, with their most recent batch of, uh, of revisions. But um, yeah, as to where this is all heading, I mean, I think we actually, you know, the U S and, and, and just maybe some of the more um, 
even some, you know, some of the more developed nations have, you know, that are currently brewing uh, sort of war right now for free speech. And so, you know, obviously, I'd be, you know, most Americans will believe, certainly do believe in the First Amendment, but then it's like, yeah, okay, you also can't, you know, you can't yell out fire in a movie theater and all these things. But, you know, as we saw with the deplatforming of, you know, former President Trump, it's like, there were folks who were incredibly progressive and leftist supporters that still found what was going on very disconcerting. And, and I get it. And then, and then also this is where it's like, well, Hey, if we actually did have decentralized, you know, ways to sort of that, that can't be censored or anything. I mean, this is what blockchain is all about. It's like, there you go. It's like, well, I guess that kind of solves it. But then it's like, well, what about when they're, you know, fostering all this hate and like insurrections and all this stuff. And it's like, don't we want to have a way to turn it off? And so, yeah, Some I don't know. Control features, right? Everything seems yeah. to be going to this. We all want to be the same. We all want access to be able to invest. We want, we want to do whatever we want. And then, but make sure that it's regulated on the back end. So some systems watching it, but not the cops or not this security exchange. I don't want anybody monitoring me. I want it to be self-regulated and I want to do what I want. And then when it fails, I'm going to come back and be mad at you because you shouldn't have let me do this. Why didn't you put more measurements and regulate this right. and control it better? You shouldn't have let me throw my money into this. So it's, <laughs> yeah, it, it feels like this um, it, it, democratization and decentralization. I think they're good, but there still has to be some sort of form of management in there because uh, it, it worries me that we all want to be the same without the same experience. So I right. demand that I want to be a, an investor and it shouldn't matter how I invest or when I invest, but then if it's, I have no learning. I'm going to learn as I go. But if I fail, then I need to blame somebody instead of taking accountability for my own actions. Um, but if I win, then I'm going to tell everybody that I was smarter than the rest. So it's it's that uh, I guess it's yin and yang. But it's an interesting world because the whole markets are driving up so high that who knows where that end goal or end point is. And then if you throw in this openness and decentralizing everybody and allowing everybody to do what they want, does it change the way startups get invested in? And does it change right. the way that next startup actually creates a company? Right. I mean, my view is that any, like, I, I don't look at innovate. I, I don't think you can ever dampen innovation, no matter which way the world goes or whether that's you know, positive or negative, you know, whatever decisions you agree with, there are always going to be ways to improve upon. Um, but no, I mean, you bring up a lot of good points. I mean, the thing that I think most people don't, realize, well, I, I, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm making very broad generalizations, but, you know, there is this deep, dark web, like 99% of what's on the internet is not searchable on Google. Um, you know, like, like, we, like we're all Maybe. sort of living in our, what am I missing? yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, Send me so, some key we terms. Already, right? so we're already like kind of self-censoring by just choosing to not, you know, use a tour, the onion router and go down like some, in, you know, ridiculous rabbit holes um, to search out what truly can't be censored. And so, you know, I wonder maybe that's going to become a little more commonplace. Um, and then, you know, people can post whatever they want. And instead of having to go to Gab or Parler or something, they can just, you know, you go down the deep dark web. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, it strikes me like the, the principalist, you know, that, that, you know, of like these American ideals and the constitution, like, I, I think it's a net positive to, you know, to provide all these options, um, you know, when it comes to free speech, when it comes to our, you know, when it comes to our rights, but um, there's going to be, I feel like a lot of um, malintent uh, that goes alongside as these things grow. And so maybe that's the price of it. It's, um, you know, it's kind of like if we could go back to 20 years ago and, like turn off Craigslist because there would be a Craigslist killer. Like, you know, would we do so? And, you know, all of these terrible things that happened on the internet, it's like, yeah, but it's still been an extremely net positive force for good. And so maybe, you know, actually adding some, you know, features of decentralization, you know, mixed into this privacy debate and um, in free speech may, you know, I think it's a net positive, but maybe it may not be as such a slam dunk case as, you know, as, as other things. Totally. I was watching a video the other day on, uh, it was a UK video on a commercial for the smart home back in the seventies. And they're like, I should be able to walk in the room and the light will turn on because I walked in. And I'm sure they were looking at that going, wow, that is freaky. And then today people are like, why the hell is the light turning on? Like it's, uh, <laughs> we've accustomed ourselves based on the way marketing and the way people have pushed startups and pushed business. 
it's transformed every day how an experience is. It doesn't matter from walking into a store to talking on a phone to listening to the radio. It's all transformed, right? And it continues to push the line. Like uh, when Family Guy came out, uh, everything was moderated. You couldn't say 99% of the things that they were pushing to say. And then that all changed, right? So I think the envelope continues to push forward. I think innovation is amazing. And I think startups are really um, coming out of the woodwork these days with more innovation things, which I think is helping. They're not just innovating on the current stuff that keeps being innovated on. There's way more uh, facets of verticals that they're coming into, uh, which is making it exciting. And this kind of shifts us into where you've been and what you've been doing lately. And um, I heard lots of great things about uh, the fund and Will Smith and all this cool stuff. So we would be, uh, it would be terrible if I didn't jump in and talk about this, <laughs> even though I was enjoying this deep dive worldly view of how things are really functioning and working. Uh, but maybe you can share a little bit more about uh, the fund and what you guys are doing today. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, so we've, we've got these two, we've got Will and Keisuke, um, this Japanese LP base. Um, we, so we launched fund one at the end of 2018, which is when I um, moved down to help launch it. Um, we've been incredibly active. We've done 60, we just did literally yesterday, our 61st deal in two years and a couple of months. So, you know, investing at a breakneck pace, we, we had basically done 50 up until COVID. And then since then we've, we've, um, obviously cut, you know, 10 or 11 checks, but, um, but yeah, it's been super fun. Uh, our investment approach is basically bifurcated into two main buckets. The first is our seed or pre-product market fit, where we tend to write checks the size of 250 K flexing up to 500. 500k and then a second bucket for series A's and B's where we can do a first check of up to two and a half million. So as you can probably tell by our investment pace, um, we're not leading deals out of this fund. Um, we're just pure play co-investors. Uh, but the flip side is that we have no minimum ownership threshold. So we can afford to be as flexible as we need to in order to earn our way onto uh, onto a cap table. And um, and and when it comes to the family, you know, our two biggest value propositions, um, you know, the first is very straightforward. The Smith family has north of 150 million unique followers across all the various different social media apps and platforms and whatnot. And, and I think that number is actually, that was a pre-COVID number. And since then, obviously, with rising screen time and all the new content, um, I think that number is actually pushed forward quite a bit. Um, but And I should say that, that that's not just Will. It's Jada, Jaden, Willow, who each appeal to very unique demographics and are icons in their own right. Jaden, certainly in the climate change movement. Um, Willow was really pushing the, you know, pushing the boundaries for, you know, an 18, 19 year old, um, woman. Um, so, you know, if you're a direct to consumer startup or trying to build a brand, they're really great folks to have quote unquote around the cap table. Um, you know, there's one element, which is they obviously have, you know, millions and millions of followers. If they post about something they, and that customer converts, that obviously brings the marginal cost of acquiring a customer to zero, which is, you know, certainly helpful at a, in a, in a day when, you know, folks are spending, in, 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 when startups are spending an insane amount on, on acquiring customers. The second thing that, that we just realized with one of our portfolio companies um, is that, you know, they, like even just mentioning Will Smith or, you know, some, someone else as prominent as him in the press release as to like a banking for teen startup or whatever, it gets picked up by a lot of um, media channels that traditionally don't, aren't part of the normal like press circuit. And so, for us in this investment called Step, you know, we were picked up by Essence, um, and then that got picked up by a bunch of other sort of you know media focus for African Americans, which is yeah, I mean, much harder to reach. Um, you know, I guess for for the Valley, you know, traditionally hasn't been that great at it, and so you know, we can basically turbocharge that by simply adding Will to that press release or making an investment, and so um, that has turned out to be equally compelling as you know whether it's a post or you know whatever it may be. Um, so yeah, we're very pleased on, uh, on that front as well. Awesome. And, and how did, uh, how did this, the whole connection thing get together for you guys to be able to work this for it's, it's very exciting. Um, I was talking to, um, uh, a, a, another investment group in the, in the U S and they're, they were heavily focused around, um, uh, oh my God, read and, um, from LinkedIn and his Airbnb oh, yeah, sure. investments and all those things. And, they created a company and they've created a fund. So it was pretty exciting to, to learn about that and what they're doing. Um, and they were all tied in. Uh, all these individuals are tied in through this business that tied into this business and they all connected. So always exciting. So how did, how did this all come about? Yeah. Yeah. The genesis of the fund is, is, is pretty interesting. So Will and, and, and his family office, really, they've been investing in startups for, you know, well over a decade now. Um, direct, direct investing, I should say. 
Um, so, you know, he's uh, and the family office and the, and the folks behind him um, have always been very accustomed. They understand the value, the value of getting in early. And, you know, there are a bunch of examples, um, you know, of that. Um, and then Keisuke, you know, he Japan, I don't think, has as many athletes on the global stage as, you know, something like the U.S. And so he was such an accomplished, you know, athlete in his own right that he was and, and he and he was such a you know, folks just turn into fanboys and fangirls when they see him. And it was basically a marriage of each family office that was saying, you know, will like, I have the deal flow, um, especially at a moment when, you know, there's this, uh, this is an unverified statistic that 30 to 40% of venture dollars actually trickle their way back to Google and Facebook for ads. So it goes to the, you know, it's like LP dollars to the venture fund, to the startup, to that startup's marketing department, and then into just ad spend. And so when you think about this rise of influencer marketing, it coincides perfectly. And it's like, okay, like having influencers and real talent on board can, can drastically help a company get off the ground. So, so that was one. Um, and then Casey was like, look, I actually, you know, have really good relationships. Um, he's actually been an, an angel investor in his own right and done very well. And so marrying um, sort of like Will's being a honey, Will being a honeypot for deal flow, with this Japanese corporate capital, and these are some of the largest and you know very largest institutions in the world. They've been around two, two, three hundred years, um, and they could always use you know fresh eyes and ears on what's going on in Silicon Valley. And so Japan is still the third largest economy by GDP. Um, you know, tons of and even sometimes a little more tech forward in certain industries like gaming and crypto. And so um, yeah, it, it was it was a wonderful marriage. It, it took a little while to get all the to get uh, you know everything. Uh, sign because it was such an interesting hybrid investment vehicle. But, um, you know, we're very happy with where we are and, and about to go raise fund two and and uh, see what the future holds. Awesome. And is there a specific focus that you guys are on the fund on types of investments like the companies or the verticals, or is it pretty open-ended? Uh, very open. Yeah, we're, we're uh, by design generalist. Um, and really, we're as opportunistic as it comes. So, it's not that we're, you know, a lot of funds and certainly my former fund, you know, will have like sort of thematic investing buckets or they'll, they'll just have a thesis on the way they think the world's going to go and look for companies that fit it. Um, we would much prefer to follow a lot of the smarter funds out there into what they're investing in. And so, and, and, and that's backed up by data. It's not just sort of, you know, following around. It's like, like with Theranos, like, yeah, that's how things got, that's how things got out of hand when everyone's just following, you know, quote unquote, smart money. Um, though one, I should add that there were actually no like top tier Silicon Valley funds. I mean, lots of Valley folks have actually, if you ask around, like they passed on it because they were like, yeah, I went to Walgreens and they, they weren't, you know, like they were just lying their presentation or something. They didn't, they weren't actually, you know, using the finger prick. Anyway, I, I totally digress. Um, you know, to us, 90% of returns in venture accrue to the top 10% of the funds. And so, so what does that mean? It's like, okay, well, if I want to do like one, okay, it's probably best to be an LP because I want 80% of the profit, not 20% if I'm a GP. But if I am going to you know, play in the direct investing game, then I'd like to have a seat at the table. I want to be in those rounds. Now, obviously, I'm never going to be able to win a lead over an Andreessen, well, you know, get my term sheet, win, over, win out Sequoia, et cetera, Greylock, as you were just saying with Reed. Um, but if we can you know, prove our value enough to co-invest alongside them, then we can still have a profitable you know, business model as a fund, basically rivaling uh, a fund of funds to some extent, because um, they have to still give up fees on fees. Um, so that's basically how we've been um, sort of operating. It's like, you know, let's talk to the, you know, like let's befriend, like, you know, with no sharp elbows, play nicely with everyone. We're not, you know, we're not trying to muscle anybody out of a round. We're just trying to prove our value and, you know, keep us in the game and, and, and yeah, kind of take it from game, there. Right? That makes a big And be invited. Hundred um, percent. And look, there are a lot of other funds. It, it, it's competitive. You know, Will's not the only celebrity that's that's you know gotten in the venture game. Um, but we think we've got something a little more differentiated with our Japanese angle. Um, but in the, the second part of our value prop, I should say, is just business development for the country as a whole. So, given they're still a third largest economy by GDP, um, and they're very hungry for innovation, um, you know, we have a number of examples to point to um, uh, on both those fronts. Brilliant. I, uh, I worked with a startup maybe eight years ago, and it was in Will's early investment period. And I guess he was in Toronto. He was working with um, a marketing agency, and they managed all of Will's social footprint at the time. Nice. So they were, uh, I can't remember, we were working on building a platform for them. So um, 
I didn't have a direct conversation with Will, but I was part of that whole kind of atmosphere. And it was kind of neat to know that he was so heavily like an Ashton Kutcher was so heavily involved in the startup community as I was uh, working inside of it as well, but not to the extent that they were. So it was pretty fascinating to kind of see that, how much it's progressed over the last 10 years. Right. Yeah, no, it's exciting. Hopefully a lot more, a lot more to come in the next 10. Agreed. Agreed. Um, all right. So one of the things that we're going to, we're going to jump into right now is um, rapid fire questions. Love and it. Um, because I closed the template down, I'm going to go off by heart here. So um, first question to jump in and dive into this is uh, what got you started in working with early stage companies? Um, I think it was probably, and then I, I got to make these rapid. Um, it was just the, the biggest and most influential companies and people were all venture backed and have all sort of fallen, followed this, you know, tried and true path. And so to even be, you know, look like the most trite thing to say as an investor is like, thanks for having me along for the ride. And like, it's been so great, but like, I understand every time I see those on LinkedIn or wherever, as somebody rings the bell at the, you know, at the NASDAQ or New York stock exchange and, and I get it. And even, and, and look, that's obviously in the public, like IPO is an unbelievable outcome, but even for the smaller wins when they get acquired and, you know, just seeing these founders go from every startup is a roller coaster. I don't care even if you're clubhouse now or whatever, but um, seeing them go through these trials and tribulations and just like come out for the better um, and meanwhile, you know, I'm like sitting, I'm like, you know, on the couch, like taking their call as why their VP of engineering quit and they're crying and whatever. But like, there's nothing more fulfilling, I think, other, other than actually being a founder, um, which, you know, may or may not present itself someday. Awesome. Uh, what's your favorite part of investing? Um, it's probably uh, my favorite part of investing is probably when they get when the when the momentum shifts. Because when folks go out for their, you know, for their first round, when they're doing their process, it's a ton of no's. It's a ton of like, oh my God, like, you know, are we doing something wrong? Like, like, what am I doing? Like, I mean, am, am I going to lose my family? And like all these things, there's so much second guessing. And then the second they get a term sheet or the second they get that yes. And then all the others that were sitting on the sidelines start like piling in and they're like stalking the founder or something. It's, the, it's like when that light flip. Uh, light switch flips that that's like the most exciting and you just get a text that's like such and such like we just got a term sheet and it's like boom like obviously again you are by no means out of the woods it's just you know it's a, another milestone but um, that to me is, is so satisfying yeah I love that part uh, how many companies do you invest in per year uh, we're probably gonna do I mean I'd say about 20 to 25 okay awesome uh, you mentioned the vertical side. So on the due diligence, is there anything that you look for um, when you're diving into a company? Uh, mostly it's finding out what perspective, uh, the thesis of the lead partner. Um, so whoever has like, look, at the end of the day, you literally have to put your money where your mouth is in, in, in venture investing. And the leads are the ones that are putting the most money at stake. And, you know, in theory, they have the most conviction or, you know, similar amount. And so understanding why, you know, why they do have that and where they think the world is going by backing that startup is, is the most important piece of any investment. Okay. What's your timeline for investment? Like beginning from a first phone call to the close, well, how long does it each take? Uh, we have never exceeded two weeks. Um, yeah, from, that's fast. Yeah. <laughs> well, so the other thing I should, I should add uh, is that we, I, it's like, we're, we're basically forced to, like it's a function of our investing. So most of the times we'll get calls. We have a hundred percent inbound deal flow. Um, they're like, well, you guys you know, are doing side first carts. First. So side carts tend to be all the works there. People are already investments are ready to go. And you guys are coming in and making that investment. So basically, yeah, there's a second closing two weeks after the first, we get introed, you know, right around the first closing. And then it's like, okay, we have to run our process. Otherwise, you know, they're going to leave us, leave us behind. I love it. Um, are there any things that you like to really emphasize on in your research? Is it on the team? Is it on the product, the CEO? Like, is there anything that you really just drive into? Um, there are a number, I mean, yeah, like at the early stage, it's team product and market or team TAM and mode. Um, but honestly, so much, I mean, we're living in like just bizarro world right now with, uh, speed in this pandemic valuations have never been higher. I think actually through this year, like we've doubled the amount of venture capital to date compared to last year, which again is only like five or six weeks and is probably overrepresented by some super concentrated investments. But 
I mean, the way things are going, it's, it's really exciting. The, the one thing I will say of one thing that I think separates the good from the great or the one common trait that every successful startup that I've seen has is capital efficiency. Um, there are a bunch of ways to measure that when you can do it, you can do it by valuation or by dollars raised, you know, equating to revenue or whatever metric you want to choose. But ultimately like that input of, you know, input to output um, in terms of capital efficiency is um, such a defining characteristic when a startup reaches, reaches that point. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, do you prefer, do you have any preferred terms that you invest on? Pref shares, common shares, safes? Oh, uh, no. I mean, we're, we're totally indifferent as to whether it's a price round, convertible note or safe. Um, as for, I mean, preferences and non purchase I mean, yeah, we, we are as typical as it gets. So one, we don't, we don't, uh, you know, we don't give term sheets. So we're always following what the original investor is. That said, I, we have never in the 61, I mean, have done anything with anything participating. That's either a bad company or a bad investor for the most part. I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah. And, and again, all this stuff is very geographically specific and, and situation specific, but it's hard to find. Uh, there's hair on every deal, but when you see something participating, there's it's hairier than, than it should be. Fair enough. Uh, any, um, do you do follow on investments? We do. We do we try and double down on our winners as, as much as we can. Awesome. Uh, do you take board seats? No board seats. We've got a couple observer seats, but. Um, uh, early stage companies, you, you know, you're not putting on a suit, you're, you know, opening up doing a two hour Zoom or something. And honestly, with early stage companies, you're always kind of, you're on an informal board, depending on how close you are with the founder. So uh, that's kind of where we, where we sit. Okay. Uh, two more questions on this side. So um, because you guys are, the way your fund structure and it works, do you guys do anything outside of it? You mentioned in Japan where you've got open up markets. Are there other things that you do outside of just financing? Like, are you doing marketing campaigns for them? Are you doing ways to really get that product out there and help bolster up your companies? Yeah, um, you know, so certainly there's there's the will side uh, and the family as to like the power they bring. If they do choose to do, you know, to post about something, they also have, you know, a, what I would describe as a media empire behind them. So, you know, he's, he's got a huge content and social media um, team. They have like a, a TV and movie studio. I mean, a whole... Uh, just big operation that's going on. And so to the extent that any startups need any guidance as to like, you know, what does this make sense? Does this kind of campaign make sense to activate, you know, this such and such, or should we be targeting this cohort as we have a number of folks that they can talk to that are doing some of the biggest and best deals. Certainly every movie he does, Ryan Reynolds' latest show, things on Snap and all the new sort of um, media uh, mediums that are out there. So um, that, and it's really the, the Japan side too, is, you know, it tends to favor later stage companies, but if you're looking at targeting an international global growth market with enterprise ACVs that can match us, uh, Japan is a very great, um, place to go. Awesome. I'm a big fan. I love Japan. Yeah. I've been there a couple of times, especially in uh, Kyoto. It's amazing. Mountains awesome yeah. too. Um, so we kind of like to shift things into, uh, before I get to a little bit more personal side. Uh, the one question I have is I'm always looking for those uh, real heartfelt, uh, heartstring pulling type of uh, startups that you've come across where, you know, they if on the brink of destruction or they're on the brink of uh, breaking through on success and then something occurs and they've had to struggle their way through. But just to show people what it really takes, it doesn't matter what corner of the world you're in, what it takes to be an entrepreneur, something that comes to mind that just kind of like, yeah this lady did this and it was amazing or whatever it might be. Just, uh, yeah. Anything that comes. Um, man, I, uh, there are so many to choose from. I mean, it's actually hard to, to, yeah, to really get one. I'm trying to think, I mean, I've done like same day, there have been financings for companies that weren't about to get done where I had to wake up at like, 4 a.m. I was in Madison, Wisconsin, drive to O'Hare through a snowstorm. Um, not even sure if my plane fly out to LA to do a full day, basically help one of our portfolio companies pitch to get a term sheet. Otherwise, they were going to have to like turn off the lights. Basically, they had, they had to start shut, do, doing the wind down that night because their lawyers were like, we cannot in good conscience or in good faith, like, you know, like do our duty if we don't tell you, like, you need to start shutting things down. Um, that same day, and now I'm tugging the strings because um, we were putting our dog down that day. It was like miserable. Uh, and I'm certainly not trying to get, you know, uh, any sort of sympathy to, towards my side, but especially for the founder, 
Um, it was just like such a harrowing time. Anyway, we did it and we wouldn't find out until, until the following or like later that night or something when I was on the plane back, but I like sprinted back to LAX to go back to this still snowstorm in Chicago. And then, you know, my drive back, I was like thinking about my dog. Um, they did end up getting it. Uh, that company is now I should say faltering, uh, and like they're looking for, for a soft landing. But I, I mean, to be honest, it's like, look, anyone can, I mean, the, the things that actually really, um, I'll say that, that, that things that I've, I've been humbled by are, you know, especially in the Valley, there's such a, um, over-selection, over-optimization for pedigree. You know, I mean, if you have a Stanford, like it's just assumed that if you went to Stanford, you can probably go raise a one or $2 million seed for whatever you do or something. And the thing that I really lo like love to see are those folks, and it's certainly represented in, you know, lots of up-and-comers, but even folks that, that went to, you know, quote-unquote non-target schools or, or did things non-traditionally prior to, you know, doing venture or doing a startup, because uh, it reminds me of that book range, but I, I think they've had to work, and it's just something that's, that's, very true and bandied about with African-Americans. It's like, you know, you've got to work twice as hard to get half as far. And, and I think that's true even for folks that didn't, you know, that, that, you know, grew up, you know, not with as many, as much means as, as a lot of others, or, you know, going to these non-target schools and just having to sort of like work their way up. It's like, you went to like some state school and wherever, like, what are you doing at this like glorious tech company surrounded by Ivy leaguers and, and, you know, and everyone's fairly well off. And so, yeah, to me, like that's still, and look, we, the Valley and the whole tech industry has a long, long way to go, but um, there's nothing personally for me that's more reassuring than seeing someone like pull themselves up by the bootstraps, teaching them to code while they're doing, while they're like working, you know, two jobs. I mean, it's like, it's unbelievable what people put themselves through just to get to, um, just to get to a place where most others just kind of walk into. And so, um yeah, I mean, that to me is the most reassuring. And really, it's just for any aspiring founders and VCs out there. It's like, look, you don't need, you don't need to go to a fancy school, you really don't need you just need sort of like a really unique way, you know, perspective on on the way you think the world is going and a product to, you know, to, to, to fit that world. So yeah, that to me, that's what keeps me going. And that's what's the most exciting, even in, you know, crazy times, like during an insurrection, and just we're at the most polarized, I think, since I've ever been alive. But um, there's way more hope and optimism than there is, um, you know, being cynical and pessimist. So that's what I love it. Doing. Well said, well said. All right. We're going to jump into like three, four questions. One question I should ask at the beginning, but we're going to jump into these more personal side of things. Uh, sure. So first question is what's one thing about you that nobody would know. Ooh. Uh, so like what's not, Oh, okay. Yeah. I've got one. Um, 10 years ago, um, I was living, or 11 years ago, summer of 2010, I was in living in Uganda and the World Cup was happening, the final. And we had a reservation at the Shadondo Rugby Club uh, with a couple of our friends. We're going to go watch, I think it was like Netherlands, Italy, I want to say. Uh, anyway, at halftime, we heard what sounded like the largest firework I've ever heard. And, and we didn't think anything of it. We're like, oh, it's the World Cup, like nothing happened. Oh, sorry, sorry. I'm not, God, I'm screwing the story up. We had a reservation at the rugby club. They lost our reservation. And so we went to a restaurant across the street. And at halftime, we heard this like big firework or whatever. Um, didn't think anything of it. Right as we got to the 90th minute, we heard what we were sure was a bombing. And the whole restaurant just like erupted. And then there was like a little aftershock, which is when we definitely knew. And so we got out of there and the bombing actually happened at the rugby club where we were supposed to have dinner um, 65, I mean, I think 65 people died that, that firework that we thought happened in halftime across the city was also a separate place that had been bombed. Um, so I'm not saying like, it's like, I was like one of those people that missed a plane that ended up crashing. Like it was a huge, it was across this rugby pitch. Um, but certainly dodged some in, you know, crazy, crazy, um, yeah, violence. That's for sure. That's crazy. Okay. Well, that's one thing that people would know that I guess that's, uh, <laughs> You're hitting it well on that one. That was uh, a, a tough story, but it sounds like, uh, well, you made it out. That's all matters. Made it through. All right. Yeah. Second question. Favorite sports team? Favorite sports team? Oh, probably the pa Green Bay Packers. Um, grew up in Wisconsin. I mean, that whole, I'm a shareholder, so I get to call myself a team owner. Thanks. So I spent 350 bucks eight years ago when they opened it up. But yeah, no, I love what they're about. Uh, you know, it's, just, it's got that small town feel. Um, you know, you got the ice bowl way back when, and it's just, uh, they're such a lovable team. And, um, now that the Cubs won and that curse is broken, I think the Packers, you know, should hopefully, you know, hold that uh, all Americans should hold them in, in the highest regard. 
I agree. Yeah, that's good. They're uh, they're an all right team. All right, now this is the big one. Favorite movie and the character that you'd play in the movie. <laughs> oh man, wait. Fa- okay, so now I got to choose which character I want to play in. You know, I what is my favorite movie? Well, okay. So there's like a real answer, which I'll give is Apollo 13, because I would love to be Jim Lovell, AKA Tom Hanks. I mean, I think that's just unbelievable what they, what they went through. Um, But my fun answer is Beverly Hills cop three. And I would love to be Eddie Murphy as Axel Foley um, in that movie. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah, he was phenomenal. I'm actually I'm writing this down because I know I have to go watch this movie. So yeah, I mean it's just it's uh, it's just so fun. It's such a hilarious, such a ridiculous movie. But love Eddie Murphy, obviously. So yeah. Oh, and I thought you were going to go into uh, um, uh, like a Will Smith movie or something. And I actually just watched. Uh, <laughs> what's that one where uh, I am Will or I am Sam or whatever it is? I am I, robot. Yeah, I am robot. Yeah, is that the no? No, I saw that one before. It was the one where he's uh, uh, the only one left on Earth that he thinks, and he's trying to find the cure. Contagion. Oh, no, yeah. Um, I know what you're thinking of. I'm ah, wow. Should have looked over his uh, filmography before this. What is it? It's not iRobot. It's um, damn it. I, I thought it was I am something, but. I watched it literally like three weeks ago. I probably should have watched it at the start of the pandemic, but I had seen it already and I thought, eh, I don't want to watch this. But when I watched it the other day, still a great movie. I, great. I just, uh, anything that can get you kind of entrenched in what's going on in the world and, and it, it did a good job. So, um, yeah, I am legend. Uh, Independence Day, by the way, is a great, if I had to choose a Will movie, 100% Independence Day. Um, oh, but yeah, I am legend. I am legend. Yeah, the that's the one. Year. Yeah. Or Mib's good too. He's done Mib, some yeah. good tricks. Man, we could do a whole whole interview just on Will Smith and his movies. But yeah, he's uh, he's uh, done a lot of great things. So, sure. well, mostly the best thing he's done that's a great thing is he created a fund. So that's all that matters. So, <laughs> all the other stuff I is okay, but the fun thing that's what keeps the world r- running and moving forward. So I love it. Absolutely, yeah. He's um, he's a beast. Well, Vic, I appreciate all your time today. Uh, phenomenal. We went through an amazing journey. I got to finally pick some brain on blockchain and, and find out where the world's going. And I think at the end, uh, you know what? You provided a ton of insight. It was awesome. Uh, big fan of your movie selection. I'm going to go watch that one. Um, but the way we like to end our shows is we want to provide you with the last word. So the last thing uh, that you're going to get to say to a startup or to investor, whatever thing that you want to share that'll help them through tomorrow or through the next day. I turn it over to you to, to give the last word. Yeah, no, thanks um, for that. And first, and again, like, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm, you know, this, this has been by far the most fun podcast I've, I've had. And I actually always appreciate when folks, you know, either make it a conversation or just go off the beaten path and like, tell me about your, you know, most favorite deal. And it's like, you know, um, so very much appreciate that. Um, and as far as, you know, I, I get any advice to start, you know, one is actually like, trust your gut a lot more than, than like VCs like me. Um, we will never understand. And this is like such a shame of, uh, of like the power of capital formation and allocation in this world. But, you know, a lot of folks like, like, just don't get bogged down. Don't, um, you might have a, have a friend that's a founder that, that was able to raise money a lot easier than, than you might be able to, but, yeah, I guess, you know, the one thing that I just, I really like to say is like, run your own race. Um, you know, there's always going to be someone younger and smarter and, and, you know, with more experience and, you know, there's always going to be another competitor coming out of the woodwork. And it's like, just focus on doing what you told your investors and like on what you want to do and on what you want to build. Um, don't, the rest is just riffraff and is just noise. Um, and as long as you execute on things that you, you know, you promised yourself and you promised your team, um, then, you know, you laid it all out there and I'm not going to rehash the Teddy Roosevelt in the arena thing, but like all those things are generally true, but, um, but sincerely, yeah, no, I mean, I wish everyone the best of luck. Um, and then my email is, I'm sure you're gonna put this in the show notes, but it's Vic, V I K at dreamers.vc. I respond to every single email. Um, I try to, I, I hate the fact that's, you know, so like the importance of a warm intro is is so necessary. You know, other, other folks would just send it to the trash can if it's cold or something. Like, I think that's the, 
it's a terrible way to live. Um, and it's really unfair. And so I'm not saying that, you know, like you're, you're getting a term, you know, you're getting money or a check or something, but, um, the least we can do is be decent and courteous, um, you know, in this world. So, um, yeah, I mean, please do reach out and, and thanks again for having me. That was awesome. Yeah. A lot of fun. Uh, like he said, um, provided, uh, so much cool stuff there with Vic. Um, I loved it, man. Trust your gut and run your own race, man. That's impactful because that's what startup world is all about. It's, uh, it's figuring out where you want to be, man, create your own world and then live in it. Take the insights, take the info and drive it. But yeah, they've got a, a really cool fund. They're doing a lot of great things. They're following on and they're, uh, they're helping make lots of investments and, Big fan of the whole Will Smith space and what they've done too. So uh, thank you again, Vic, and uh, everybody for uh, joining in.